Well, we are in the midst of a series talking about discipleship and what it means to follow Christ. The next few Sundays, we're going to think about what it means to follow Christ in this world and the challenges that presents. So kind of the, the launching pad for this next two or three Sundays will be John 15, verses 18 through 19. So follow with me as Jesus is speaking to his disciples, knowing he's speaking to us. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Bow with me in prayer. Father, these words are stark and difficult to hear. We don't expect it, Father. We would expect that those who follow the Christ, who seek to live as he lived, would be accepted. But Father, we also know that this world led to your crucifixion. And that to follow you is to follow the way of the cross. So we ask for your help, Lord. We ask for your help to be faithful, to live for you. We ask for your help in understanding this truth that we would stay true to you. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen. In January of 1992, I was called to be the pastor of First Baptist Church in Blum, Texas. Now, I was a seminary student at that time, and Blum was a very small population, 352 farming community just south of Fort Worth. So this was a very exciting and stressful time. It was about three weeks into my ministry there when we had a children's sermon. We still did that every Sunday. I would call the kids to come down out of the congregation, and I would sit on the small step leading up to the pulpit and usually share just a brief story and then have a prayer. But this Sunday, something happened that I did not expect. Right before I prayed, one of the girls spoke up very loudly and clearly and said, I know someone who hates you. I did not expect that. In my mind, I was thinking, I've only been here three weeks. You know, who, who can hate me already? They don't even know me yet. But I tried to gather my composure, and I said, well, that's okay. We'll, I will love them, and we'll, just, we'll pray for them. So we bowed our heads and prayed and went through the rest of the service. After the service that day, her Sunday school teacher came up to me, and she was smiling, and she said, Pastor, let me explain. In Sunday school, we talked about how the devil hates all Christians. She was talking about the devil, and she said, Pastor, if you had noticed, she was kind of pointing downward when she said that. And I said, okay, now that makes sense. It can be very shocking, though, when you hear that someone hates you. That's exactly what Jesus is preparing us for. His words are very clear. In fact, when you look at verse 18, the word if is a word that is under the assumption that the world will hate us. It's like saying that tomorrow they're predicting a 90% a chance of rain. So if it does rain, well, that if is meaning there's a strong chance it will rain. Jesus is saying just expect that the world is going to dislike you. 
because you're a disciple of Jesus. The world represents that system that is aligned against God. That's against our Heavenly Father. Now, that level of againstness, if that's a word, against God can come in several ways. Sometimes the world is very aggressive in its antipathy toward our Heavenly Father. It's very clear. There's an anger toward all things of God. But in other times, the anger the world feels toward God is expressed in a passive apathy. Just not caring. But the bottom line is that the world rejects the truth and the authority of God. Because of that, it certainly rejects the claims of Jesus to be God. And if we fell in step with the world, if we fell in step and lived like those who believe and know God, the world would applaud us and welcome us and we would be at ease living comfortable in this culture. But because Jesus has called us out of the world, we are different. Not different because we're better. We are different because we recognize the grace of God. And we receive that and we submit to His authority now, the changes that have occurred within our culture during the last 25 to 30 years have happened with such rapidity, it's caused us whiplash. We look around and we can't believe how things have changed to the point today Christians are viewed as an impediment to progress. Often we will be accused of those who stand on the wrong side of history and our narrow-mindedness is prohibiting our culture from progressing as it should. We are stunned because in the vast majority of our nation's history, even though we may not share the same faith, we shared the same ethical foundation. We believed there was truth. And we believed in a common morality that therefore shaped how we lived. That has changed. Today we are hated by the world because we recognize the authority of God. We recognize an authority outside of ourselves. There was a show in the 1990s that I confess to watching and even now still watching at times in reruns. It was a show called The X-Files. The reason that came to mind is because the motto of that show was this, the truth is out there. That no longer resonates with our culture. The truth is no longer seen as being out there. The truth now is you. Whatever you view as truth, that's your truth. Whatever you determine as reality is your reality. And that sets the stage for our conflict. Think of it in terms like this. Suppose there were a group of kids that wanted to use your backyard to play a game. And you were of the mindset, let the kids play back there. Grass will grow back. It's okay. Yeah, you can use my yard to play. And they come and they say, we're going to play a game of football. So the kids scatter to come back later. And when they arrive, you notice that one group of kids has showed up and they are carrying the American football. They're ready to tackle and slobber knock someone. But then you look on the other side and you notice this group of kids, they're not carrying an American football. They have what we call a soccer ball. To them, football is soccer. And so they want to start playing. So the question is then, how are these two groups that are playing two different games that have two separate set of rules going to coexist in the same backyard? There's going to be a problem because you have two different sets of rules. 
That is where we are today. And that's why we are hated. Not only is it because we believe that truth is external to us, but it's because we follow Jesus, who is what? The way, the truth, and the life. And Jesus prepared us for this even in two illustrations that he gave to explain our calling in the world. In Matthew 5, Jesus said, and you can fill in the blank here, you are the blank of the earth, the salt. Think about that for a moment been greatly debated about what that analogy is carrying forth now I have found out that salt. have you ever heard that phrase it's like pouring salt in a wound you know why people would pour salt in a wound because it heals salt causes the cells that are carrying bacteria to begin to wither and dehydrate pulling out and killing the bacteria and that's a good thing but what is the problem with pouring salt in a wound it hurts <laughs> It's painful. That's why doctors use a saline solution to help clean wounds, not salt itself. The thing that could heal the wound brings pain as it does so. Think about light. Light is a good thing. It keeps me from stubbing my toe at 3 in the morning when I'm going to the refrigerator. What happens when you first turn on light when you're coming out of the darkness? Oh, gosh, stop, stop, that hurts. Turn off the light. That's the world. The world is in darkness. So as we go to be salt of the earth, there is a level of pain as we confront the world with the truth of God. It strikes at our pride when we preach the cross of Jesus Christ. Now, there are certainly no shortage of examples that I could give you where disciples come into conflict with the world. So this is the path that we're going down this morning. I want to be talking about the sanctity of life, specifically the issue of abortion. Next week, we're going to share communion together. Then the following week, we're going to come back and examine the hot topic of our culture today, which deals with sexual ethics, homosexuality, and gender identity. Because if we are to be effective disciples in the world, these are issues that we have to think through and to ask ourselves, how can we be salt and a lot and light in a world that holds radically different values than we do. Now, when you come to the issue of life and the value of life, there are many non-believers that would agree with us to say life is valuable. We have to recognize that. They would say, yes, life is precious. In fact, let me give you an example. Going back to 1948, the United Nations came together in Paris and determined what, or wrote what they call the Declaration of Life. In fact, up on the screen, you're going to see words from the preamble. If I could get that pulled up, there it is. 1948, the United Nations Declaration of Human Rights. Whereas recognition of the inherent dignity and the equal and inalienable rights of all members of the human family is the foundation of freedom, justice, and peace in the world. Now, look at the underlying statement. Recognizing inherent dignity, the equal and inalienable rights of all members of the human family. That speaks of value. Look at the next slide. Whereas the peoples of the United Nations have in their charter reaffirmed their faith in fundamental human rights, in the dignity and worth of the human person, and the equal rights of men and women and have determined to promote social progress and better standards of life and larger freedom. Now, you and I would agree with those underlying statements. We would say, yes, there is dignity and there are rights that all men and women have. But here's where the issue comes. Nowhere in that document, and you can go online and read it, is the foundation for those rights given. It just says it's inherent. Now, this is where that's a problem. 
If a group comes and they say, we simply recognize these rights with no foundation, that means at some point they can unrecognize those rights. Think of it in terms like this. You have a house and you have a houseboat. The house is built upon something of a firm foundation. What is the foundation for a houseboat? Water. But if the current of that water changes, the houseboat goes in a different direction. This is like a houseboat. It's got, yeah, a foundation, but there's no basis or substance to it. What about us as believers? We believe in the value of life. And I can give you two reasons right now that are external to us. The first you'll see up on the screen. We believe in the value of life because every life is made in the image of God. The value exists in whose image we bear. God said, let us make man, and that man means humanity, in our image after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and so on. You can read that. Now, it's debated what it means to be made in the image of the likeness of God. It can mean dominion where we exercise rule over creation. But I think it also speaks to our intellectual, moral, spiritual, and emotional capabilities. We are distinct from animal, the animal kingdom. We have value beyond the animals. We do. And as much as we adore animals and love them, we recognize at a fundamental level Humans are more valuable. Suppose my house were to catch fire. Suppose my wife Jody was still in the house. All the other kids are gone. They're out. And Jody is in the house with our, two, our three cats, Rufus, Ralph, and Sylvia, and our dog Lady. I used an illustration weeks ago of our chihuahua Tippy. He sadly passed away. I know. House is on fire now got three cats and a dog and my wife inside who should I save yeah you better believe it and nobody would say why, why didn't you grab Sylvia the cat I only had time to grab one it's going to be my wife why we recognize the inherent value of one made in the image of God Another reason is Psalm 139. Look up on the screen and you'll see. For you, that's God. God formed me in my inward parts. You, you formed my inward parts. I'm sorry. You knitted me together. That word knitted is a beautiful word of a weaver sitting down at a loom making this beautiful tapestry. God pieces us together. He says, I praise you for I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. That word fearfully could also be translated awesomely. We are made in such a way, and, and if you just look at the complexity of the human body, it's amazing. And God knits us together. Now the contrast of these two foundations, one having a lack of a foundation and the Christian view which has one, centers around the issue of abortion. That's where our culture finds itself in a bit of a conundrum. On one hand, our culture cries out, we value life, life is important. But at the same time, our culture holds up the right of the individual to define reality. And it's around this issue that those two values collide. The value of life and the value of the individual's right to define reality. Now, this is seen, if I can give you another example from the legal world, in a decision that was rendered by the Supreme Court in 1992, the Planned Parenthood of Pennsylvania versus Casey. Governor Casey governor of Pennsylvania at that time had signed into law a bill which limited abortions in such ways. Teenagers or a minor had to have parental approval to gain an abortion 
And if a wife decided to have an abortion, she had to communicate to her husband she was having one. Planned Parenthood brought suit against the governor of Pennsylvania saying those curtailed a woman's right to act. Now the Supreme Court sided with Planned Parenthood in a 5-4 to four decision. It upheld Roe versus Wade. And I wanted to share with you, as an example of this conflict, the, uh, the opinion, the majority opinion. Now, once again, you can find this online, the majority opinion from this case. Upon the screen, you'll see the five justices that voted to uphold abortion said, at the heart of liberty is the right to define one's own concept of existence, of meaning, of the universe, and of the mystery of human life. Now, that sentence in of itself, is thought-provoking enough. Liberty is the right to define your own concept of existence, your own reality, as it were. Beliefs about these matters could not define the attributes of personhood were they formed under the compulsion of the state. Now, keep in mind that phrase, attributes of personhood. We're going to come back to that in a moment because that's a crucial point. Use this day to argue for abortion. If you'll continue to the next slide. And I'm sorry it's in such small print. Now the justices begin to talk about the mother who carries a child to full term is subject to anxieties, to physical constraints, to pain that only she must bear. That's right. As a father, as a husband, as a grandfather, I recognize there's a uniqueness to a woman carrying a child and the pains that she goes through. I would never look at a pregnant woman and say, I understand. I don't. The Supreme Court was recognizing this, that these sacrifices have from the beginning of the human race been endured by a woman with a pride that ennobles her in the eyes of others and gives to the infant a bond of love cannot alone be grounds for the state to insist she make the sacrifice. So in other words, even though there is a strong bond and there are sacrifices that are being made, the state, the government, cannot compel her to make that sacrifice. Her suffering is too intimate and personal for the state to insist without more upon its own vision of the woman's role, however dominant that vision has been in the course of our history and our culture. In other words, because the woman has a unique role in carrying a child, the government can't compel her to do that. They said a woman should have the right to terminate the pregnancy because of the sacrifices inherent in carrying a baby. The destiny of the woman must be shaped to a large extent on her own conception of her spiritual imperatives and her place in society. Now that's the rationale. It's a rationale that set, leads to the phrase used today, reproductive freedom. We do not want to curtail the proponents of abortion say reproductive freedom, a woman's right to choose, that if she does not want to go through the sacrifices of motherhood, she should not be compelled to, therefore she should have the right to terminate the pregnancy. But we recognize that true freedom cannot exist if there are no limits on that freedom. Take, for example, freedom of speech. And there's a great deal of debate about what freedom of speech means. We recognize we have the freedom of speaking, but at the same time, there's a limit on that freedom. You cannot go into a crowded movie theater and yell, fire. It's a limit on what free speech can do. You have the freedom to drive if you are 16 and can get a license. But does that mean you have the freedom to drive on either side of the road you want or as fast as you want? Some of you are saying yes, and that scares me. No. You recognize that if freedom is not given boundaries and guidelines, it becomes 
chaos. So we recognize that. Now this is where redefinition has occurred. You'll notice in the phrase I pointed out earlier, the justices used the phrase personhood, not life. Many argue today that, yes, that is a life, but it's not a person. So an abortion is not a taking the life of a human person. It's taking the, the opportunity for personhood to develop, and therefore it is not wrong. And I want you to think with me for just a moment about that argument. Because now we're dealing with what happens to an embryo. Most abortions in the United States occur in the first trimester, first 13 weeks. And so they argue at that point that embryo has not developed into a person, so therefore you are not ending a human life. And some even use the analogy of a car to argue this philosophically. And it goes something like this. At what point does, okay, now follow with me in this. At what point does a car become a car? You're at the assembly line. You're there. You're watching the car. Is a car a car when the frame is there? Is a car a car when the wheels are put on? Well, if you've got the wheels and the frame but no engine, is it really a car? So they say it's the same with the embryo. It's not a full person. Why? Because it's not active in a cognitive way. It's not responding and communicating. So therefore, it's not a person. But this argument falls on the categorical imperative, which means you're comparing apples and oranges, and this is why. For a car to be a car, however you define a car, and you can discuss that at lunch, some external force has to operate to bring doors to the car. In other words, if you set a metal frame right here on this stage and you come back in three years, you know what's going to be there? That metal frame. It's not going to change one bit. Church, God in that embryo has given everything necessary for it to develop. Nothing is added to it. It grows and it develops so it's nothing that is being added to it. It is simply developing in a way to sustain and to grow in life. So it's a different argument. That embryo is life at the moment of conception. It has personhood. But what we're dealing with now are four things I want you to keep in mind. And these are not original to me. They come from a book called The Case for Life by Scott Klusendorf that I would highly recommend. And you'll see these up on the screen. So think about this embryo for just a moment. Or if the baby has, has grown and is larger than that. I want you to consider these four things. Because if we say that even as an embryo, you can end that life, you're arguing it, first of all, based upon size. You're saying that because it's a person in smaller form, it's okay to end that life. Think about the ramifications of that for just a moment. Are we really willing to say that the size of someone makes them more valuable? Now, I am six foot, three inches tall, and 200 and something pounds. Suppose you were to bring Shaquille O'Neal and stand up here. And I've stood next to a seven-footer before, and I came right here on him. Shaquille O'Neal, 7'1", 325 pounds. Are we willing to say that in his personhood, not his bank account, but his personhood, that he's more valuable than I am? What does that mean to someone that's smaller than me? Sorry. You're out of luck because you're short. No, we would say that's crazy. But that's the same argument that's used to argue that an embryo can be destroyed simply because it's not grown to a certain size in its development. Think about this next example, the L. This is going to form the acronym SLED, by the way. The level of development. 
Now, yes, embryos and fetuses are not as developed as an infant. But is that really relevant? A four-year-old is not as developed as a 14-year-old. Does that mean that four-year-old's out of luck? Level of development should not impact the value of a person. Let me carry this argument just a little bit further. My mother grew up in a large family. She had 11 brothers and sisters. Her youngest brother was named Clifford. He sadly passed away in the 1990s. Had a heart attack. Clifford was so much fun to be around. My grandmother had had a stroke and lived on a farm, and Uncle Clifford really kept the farm going. He would plow up the, the garden. I mean, they had a large garden. He would be sure the hay. They had goats and chickens and horses. Took care of them all. In fact, he would get the horses together and hitch them to the wagon, and he led the wagon in the Decatur Christmas Parade every Christmas. And, oh, man, you talk about working with him in the tobacco field? He was an engine. He was the spearman. Once, once you cut the tobacco stalk, you would hand it to him, and he would just keep, man, he would move. You couldn't keep up with him. By the way, Uncle Clifford operated on a second or third grade level because when he was born, the umbilical cord was wrapped around his neck and he was deprived of oxygen for a while. I'm very well aware that I have an earned doctorate. I can translate Greek and Hebrew, and love reading theology and deep philosophical things. But if you put me on the farm to do what Uncle Clifford did, we'd be in a mess. Am I more valuable than he was? Is he more valuable than me? We have different skills, maybe different levels of understanding. But our value? No. The level of development does not impact that one bit. Because if we follow this thinking, it's going to lead us to dangerous ground and care for the elderly. And care for those that we would look at and say, well, what value do they give to society anymore? And if you think, well, we would never have that discussion, it's happening in Europe right now. Level of development is a very slippery slope. Let's look at another one. This is the E of our sled, environment. Because the, the baby is developing in the womb, does that mean the mother has the right to decide, okay, it's in my environment, so it's no longer uh, uh, something to be cherished? The truth is that where you are has no bearing on who you are. If we accept, as I believe, that from the moment of conception there is life and personhood there that needs to grow and develop, does really the environment make a difference? If you jump into a swimming pool and the water's over your head and you're swimming underwater, are you any less of a person then than you are on dry land? Does the environment really change who you are? The answer would be no. Whether you're inside the womb, that trip down the birth canal does not automatically undo one with personhood. The environment should not make a difference, nor should, and this is the final one, the degree of dependency. This is the argument that because the mother is the host to this baby, and that's the terminology that is used, she should have the right to determine if she wants to be that host. I've even read analogies used to argue that, that she should be allowed to, and if you'll put the D up there, please, the, the level of the degree of dependency. This argument has been used that said, suppose you woke up one morning 
And there was a world-famous violinist attached to you going to live off of you for nine months. You didn't ask for this to happen, but here it is. That person is dependent upon you. Would you not have the right to say, no, I don't want that violinist attached to me? Well, one, it's an absurd argument because it's denying the intimacy and the purpose of the act of procreation, which is a whole different sermon. But do we really want to say that the level of dependency makes it all right to terminate? This strikes home to me. My daughter Emma is completely dependent upon me and Jody to feed her, to suction out her trait, to turn her, to move her. Does that mean that we can decide? We're tired. We don't want to do this anymore. And have the culture say, good for you. You need to be free of that. We would say no until the Lord calls us home. We will take care of her. We will do what we have to do. The degree of dependency does not make a life invalid one bit. Now the question is, considering these arguments that I've given you today for life, what are we to do with these things? Before I go in what to do, I want to say just a brief word of grace. I recognize that some of you in here hearing this, some online, may have made the decision years ago to have an abortion. And I want you to know there is no condemnation can't live in the past. But what you can do is begin looking forward to say, God, by your grace, I will move forward. So please understand that our stance is not one of condemning, but we want to stand for life and come alongside and say life is important and life is valuable. And to do that, I want to give you three things that you can do. First is this, steps to take. One, support pro-life legislation. If you want to keep up to date on what's happening and where it's happening, you can visit the Southern Baptist Ethics and Religious Commission website as well as the National Right to Life website. They will keep you up to date on legislation pending on the state level as well as the national level that speaks to this. Don't be afraid to contact our representatives to communicate your desires in this. However, I must give a caveat. If I'm being very candid, I'm very skeptical of politics to bring about any lasting change. I try not to be jaded, but I also know that politics operates based on whichever way the wind of public opinion is blowing. So while we do these things, our hope is not in them. Our hope is in the Lord. And we take another step because it's easy to say, well, yeah, I'm pro-life and I'm going to contact people 800 miles away from here. Second thing is this, upon the screen, support Agape Women's Services. You've heard testimony of what they do. They're here. They're local. You can give. You can pray. Some of you, the Lord may even lay on your heart. There was a counselor involved in that that walks through this process. They offer training if you desire to be a counselor, to meet women where they are. And by the way, Agape does more than just counseling toward choosing life. They offer count, uh, classes for motherhood. They offer resources, diapers, formula, things like that. This is not just, oh, you've made the decision, we're done. This is walking with a woman through the pregnancy all the way. And that's the way that it should be if we're truly pro-life. Explore this option. The third thing is this. Have conversations. Actually talk with people about this. In those conversations, consider foster care or adoption as an alternative. Talk with your children and your teens. Talk with your neighbors. And I know I'm, I'm getting older. I'm reminded of that every day. 
I'm not sure that much profitable discussion happens via Facebook, Twitter, Snapchat, or whatever the social media platform is there. Sometimes it takes a good old-fashioned, hey, let's go have a cup of coffee, or talking with your neighbor over the fence. And I want to emphasize this clearly. The manner in which these conversations takes place is crucial. Civility is missing in action in America today. We've forgotten what it's like to be kind to one another and to actually listen. Be light. Be like Jesus. Represent Him in how we listen and how we communicate. The anger of God is not going, or the anger of man is not going to bring about the righteousness of God. If we say we believe in the value and the sanctity of life, that impacts how we talk to one another. That is not Mark Herod saying that. That is the book of James. Upon the screen, you'll see James chapter 3, verse 9. With it, the tongue, we bless our Lord and Father, and with it, we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. Think about that. If we say we're pro-life, and then we go around and we denigrate others and curse them, that doesn't make sense. He says, if we recognize that from womb to tomb a person is made in the image of God, we will treat each, other's, each other with respect. And yes, that means at times we may be yelled at when we're being as kind and as nice as we can. Isn't that what Jesus said would happen? He prepared us for that. That the world would indeed hate us. And in fact, isn't that what Jesus taught us to love? Our enemies. Church, I encourage you to think about these things. Think about them and how we treat one another and how we speak for those yet born and their right to life. I want to ask you to bow your heads with me, if you will. I'm going to be down at the front, and certainly the altar is open this morning if you want to come and to pray. Just know that the grace of God is sufficient for all things. Would you bow with me? Lord, giver of life, thank you for the mercy that you give us. Help us, Father, to show the same love you have given us to others, even those who disagree with us. Help us to speak the truth in love. And to show your gentleness and your compassion to those that are hurting. And Father, to those who may be making the choice even now on what to do with this unexpected pregnancy. Help us to point them toward life. Firmly yet gently. Lovingly. Kindly. And Father, I pray for the day when we recognize that all of life, every person, is valuable. In Jesus' name, amen.